and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Scott McDermott built the 15,000 square foot Best Body Fitness in 2002 after getting fit and finding his passion in life, following a 13-year career in architecture that had him overweight, sick, and stressed. Since getting back in shape, Scott has enjoyed an amazing journey. He went on to write a book called, If Your Body Were a Car, You Wouldn't Treat It This Way. Scott entered his first triathlon in 2005 and fell in love with the sport. After deciding to try out the Sylvan Lake Half Ironman Triathlon, he qualified for Ironman Canada and within a few years was representing Canada at the World Championships in Holland and Australia, as well as racing all over Canada and the United States. After a horrific wreck on his bicycle that nearly cost him his life, he went on to participate in the award-winning documentary, Living the Warrior's Code. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit in the March of 2020, Scott decided to shut down his gym forever. Scott is now focused on being a motivational speaker and working to get his documentary out on streaming to the world, as well as writing a book about the experience. Scott McDermott, what an honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Thanks, Casey. It's great to be here. It's great to host you. Um, I do have to talk to you first about architecture. Um, we kind of had similar trajectories. I was studying architecture in college when I decided to become a personal trainer. I joined a gym and watching the trainers um, looked really interesting and they were using heart rate monitors, which I was really passionate about. But you kind of stuck out the career in architecture. What was that like? What did, what did I miss out on? <laughs> uh, square peg, round hole. Um, <laughs> that's what you missed out on. Or round peg, square hole. I, I think that's maybe more apropos. You know, I was told by my guidance counselor in high school that I was really good at drafting because I was, and I, I really liked houses and things like that to a degree. Um, but I mean, honestly, I was just kind of lost and foundering around. I didn't know what I was going to do. My dad had passed away a year and a half earlier. Um, and so, you know, an adult male guidance figure uh, seemed like just a thing to do. And I went to college and got into architecture and got a job right away and I was, I was good at it. Like I enjoyed a lot of the technical aspects and things, things like that, but I have ADHD and sitting still all day long. Oh boy. Um, it was a struggle. <laughs> I nearly got fired quite a few times from quite a few different firms. And there was, I think at least one or two firms that when they, when they let me go, um, they were relieved. I was gone because I was very distractible. I always had to have music playing. I was always tapping my foot a thousand miles an hour. I always like to chat. Like I just, it wasn't the environment for me in that sense. But what I discovered a few years before leaving architecture was that if I had harsh, ignorant, horrible deadlines, I was unstoppable. And so I remember going to my boss once and just saying, look, you got to give me big deadlines and they got to be clear. Um, I can't have a, 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 an etherical deadline that's six months down the road. I'm just going to flounder and be a jerk and everybody's going to hate me. <laughs> So, but if you give me a rotten deadline, I need those. And I actually got into project management and supervising construction of multi-million dollar schools and stuff. And that's where I really learned to, to shine, but I still didn't love architecture. I mean, even though I was being groomed for middle management and, and I was going to be an associate partner in the firm and stuff, I, I didn't love it. Like it was, I was good at it, but once I got fit and healthy and everybody in the office was like, Holy crap, what are you even doing? And can you show me? And I, I just, and the gym environment and the gym lifestyle and coaching people. And I got certified as a trainer in the nineties. And I just, I just loved it so much. I was like, man, I can't keep doing this architecture thing. Like there's parts of it that were, were fulfilling and enjoying, but it's, it's just sitting still all day and 
staring at a computer and that's just, that wasn't my jam. And I realized that. Wow. Totally. And back then it was all on paper, right? Like when I was in high school, we were kind of transitioning from drafting on paper to drafting using the computer. And I remember having to write out that like special font that every architecture (laughs) has to know, like, like, 500 A's, 500 B's, 500 C's in exactly this way. And oh my goodness, it was so monotonous. Yeah, I don't miss those days. Um, (laughs) And printing on a set of working drawings where every letter matters. And if you screw it up, it's a problem and you're in a hurry. Yeah, I don't miss those. But we, I wasn't... um, wasn't into architecture very long before we started transitioning to computer. I was definitely one of the early adopters. And I still remember going through about a 10 year period where there was the old school drafters that were clinging to paper and handwriting with their dear life. And then those of us that had embraced CAD drawings um, and it, it became this real division. And it was fascinating to be part of because it was quite a long period of time, probably four or five years where computer drawing was honestly as good as as hand drawing or as fast. Like there was a lot of things the hand draftsman could do faster than we could, but that didn't last very long. We started to build batch files and routines and, and speed programs and stuff that would speed stuff up. And then pretty soon we could not only, then it got to the point where we got organized and realized like, you know what, if I make an a library of 30 standard details that are just universal construction techniques, I can just go copy paste and that page is done now. And there's no way the hand drafting people can do that. <laughs> yeah, so, totally. Wow. Right. It started to come around. So yeah. Interesting. And now there's no chance you would go back to hand drafting. Now. Yeah, no way. No way. Wow. That's so interesting. And in this time uh, that you were at the architecture firm, you were actively becoming more and more unhealthy. I mean, you were asking for more stressful deadlines because that was going to help you, but I'm sure that didn't impact your health very well. No. So high deadlines really assisted with my ADHD because it allowed me to hyper-focus, right? I'm a big... I function really well when I have a deadline that's non-negotiable because then I just rise. And so that was great, but I was working 80 to hundred hours a week. I was sleeping four or five hours a night. I was eating junk food. I lived on sugar and crap and had no idea. I, I was, you know, back in the nineties, everybody was like, well, I gotta eat low fat. Everything, what a load of crap that was, but I didn't know any better. And so, yeah, I cut all the fat out of my life and shoved it full of sugar. And my body was a total train wreck. And uh, yeah, I ballooned up to 230 odd pounds at 5'10", 5'11". And I didn't ever exercise, had no time for it. And it was frustrating. I would, I had crushed my back in high school in a gymnastics accident. Um, I cracked the tops and bottoms of T12, L1, L2 and cracked L1 and half. And I had a bulging disc. And so I was told by doctors that you'll be in a wheelchair by 40 and, and don't play any active sports because if anybody hits you wrong, you're, you're going to be paralyzed and all this fear they shoved in my brain. I believed them. So I did, I didn't do any exercise and I was, I had a great big gut and, you know, I was unhealthy. I would, I love to ski, but I would save up all season to go skiing. I go on a ski trip. I do one run and I was exhausted hiding in the chalet, drinking a mocha because I had no energy and it was gross, man. I had, I had allergies. I was allergic to, um, grass and pollen and dust and apples, peaches, pears, cherries, nectarines. (laughs) Like it was, it was a disaster. I was taking double strength allergy meds twice a day and I had to mow the lawn with a gas mask and shovel the driveway and have to lay on the couch with Rebecca cell for two hours. Like I was a train wreck. It was, it sucked. I yeah. wasn't any fun. 29 and falling apart. Wow. And, um, yeah. So looking back, what was the turning point? How did you turn that around? Like, what was the moment? 
the moment it was really clear, a doctor. So I went to my family doctor after having just finished another specialty appointment with, I don't know, was it endocrinologist or orthodontologist or whatever it was I went and saw that they were trying to figure out why I had tinnitus ringing in my ears, why I had unexplained dizzy spells, why my, you know, I just, I was a wreck. We were chasing down these problems and I would wait two, three months to get in to see a specialist and they do all their stuff. They go, nope, it's not that. Go back to your main, go back to my main doctor. And finally, I got sick of it. And I wrote him a two-page letter. And I'm like, doc, this is ridiculous. And he saw the letter. And he was like, well, is this some sort of comment on the medical system or my practice? And I was like, no, no, you don't need to get insulted. Like, I just, I, I know you see 30, 40, 50 people a day for less than three minutes. But I'm like 29 and I can't live this way. Like, this, this is horrible. And we keep not finding an answer. We're missing something. He's like, all right, fine. So he did a physical and started asking me a bunch of questions. And this had all stemmed from the fact that after that one last appointment, I'd gone back to the doctor and he just quick wrote me a prescription for a pill called the little blue pill. And I brought it home and I called my mother-in-law who was a retired physiotherapist. And back in those days, she had a, an actual paper book of what medicines were, um, different like um, listed ingredients versus brand names. And she looked it up and I could still hear her voice on the phone. She said, oh my. She said, this is, a par- this is um, an antidepressant normally, normally given to paranoid schizophrenics with delusional disorders when they can't sleep at night. It's very frequently used in prison to control a population. Oh, and I was like, "Good, okay, there's no way I'm taking this. And that's when I went back to the doctor with the two-page letter and said, come on, like that, I'm not taking like brain-altering chemical drugs to fix the fact that I'm fat and miserable. Come on. And so he had a talk with me and he said, well, you know, you need to eat right. You need to exercise. You need to join a gym. You need to take care of yourself. You need to drop some stress levels. And for whatever reason, it clicked. And I went and I toured about three different gyms in town and I joined one. And I still remember this lady. Her name was Vera. She was the manager. Um, she's kind of like old aunt Vera. She'd been there forever. And she handed me a video cassette after we'd been talking. This is how long ago it was. It was a video cassette. What's that? <laughs> right. I know. Right. Um, the kids today are like, oh, what? what? Never mind. Um, it's like a, it's like a streaming movie, but when you could take it home in a box, um, be, be kind, rewind. <laughs> that's right. Be kind, rewind. Exactly. So I watched Bill Phillips body of work and I sat in my basement and bawled. And I saw these people make this 12 week transformation from fat and miserable to fit and healthy. And I just, I wanted that. I wanted that fitness and health so badly. I went upstairs and I grabbed a garbage bag and I threw out all the junk food and I went grocery shopping for a bunch of fruits and veggies and lean meats and good stuff as best I knew how. And I, I picked, I went to the chapters and I got a couple of books on how to eat. And then I went to the gym and I met a guy who was a trainer and um, actually he ended up one of the guys in my office in the architectural office, one of the junior guys that did all the, the running around for us, um, you know, blueprints and stuff. He was a complete fitness nut and a bodybuilder. And so I started talking to him and we started training together and man, I dropped 40 pounds of fat, put on 18 pounds of muscle and had a six pack and my energy was through the roof. I wasn't tired anymore. My ringing, in my ears went away. My allergies basically kind of dried up. I started using a, a colostrum based product called AIE 10 and I don't have allergies anymore. And I have to tell you, I turned 53 this year and I sure as hell I'm not in a wheelchair. Um, <laughs> I trained for Ultraman. So, you know, it, my whole life did a 180 degree pivot and flew in the right direction. That's amazing. It's been, it's been unreal. Wow. That's amazing. Bill Phillips was not only EAS, but what, wasn't he the author of um, Body for Life? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So Body of Work was the original film. And then he created Body for Life. And he was the founder and CEO of EAS. And yeah, he's that guy. Wow. That was so fundamental. I, I totally remember that. A lot of people got yeah. in really, really great shape when that book came out. Yeah. And I'll bet you a lot yeah. of those principles that he was preaching then still hold up today. Totally do. Yeah, he was. He was sort of the founder of the 12 week fitness challenge, which, you know, nowadays we do three week and six week and 12 week and whatever, but he was that, that, that big foundation of, of belief and setting goals and, and putting intentions out there and, and all that great stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. So how did all of this transform into you eventually getting into the fitness industry versus just staying in architecture? Well, I think the biggest thing is kind of funny, like working in an office of 50 people, um, I would say 80% of them, if not more, were all overweight and unhealthy. And I remember when it was probably a week into me making my, my fundamental shift. Cause for me, it was an about face. It was like a dead stop start over. Like, it was just like, I'm not doing that anymore. So I had a reputation as Mr. Sugarface. Like when we had a 10 AM coffee break or a, or a Friday afternoon social event, like I was the guy that ate seven donuts and, you know, and I didn't drink coffee. I drank chocolate milk, you know, and I like, I was that guy. Everybody knew I was that guy. And, you know, if you brought in cupcakes or cinnamon buns, I was guaranteed to have one. It'd be first in line kind of a guy. And all of a sudden I'm not eating any sugar and I'm not having any junk and I'm eating cottage cheese and Greek yogurt and I'm eating all this healthy stuff and, you know, and people are like, oh, yeah, right. You're not going to last a week. <sighs> Mr. Sugarface is going to give up carbs. <laughs> and it was funny. They kind of taunted me for the first while. But then after a while, my resolve was just bulletproof. And they realized, wow, there's no push on this guy. He's not He's not going off it. And they just kind of left me alone after a while. But after about, about two months, people would come up to my office. And they'd be like, um, they'd look around a little bit. So, um <clears throat> how, how you look amazing. Can you, uh, you give me any tips? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I, all of a sudden within about three months, everybody in the office, maybe a few exceptions to holdouts, but pretty much everybody in the office was on what we used to call the plan, which was me and my buddy, Pat, who was the fitness nut that was also in the office. We were pretty much coaching everybody like every coffee conversation was about nutrition and working out like the whole office transformed into this it just was a different era and people were getting healthier and fitter and i was just like man i freaking love doing this and people at the gym started coming up to me and asking me what was going on because i my change was pretty obvious and i mean i know there are there are even bigger changes in the world. I'll be great. But I just, my change was pretty obvious and, and my energy and my attitude and my passion. And so I got certified as a trainer because so many people were asking me for help. And I thought, well, I should probably, you know, learn a little bit more than I even know. So I got certified as a trainer. And, um, and then the gym that I was working out at was like, you know, you interested in being a trainer. So I started working nights and weekends as a trainer. And I worked at the front desk to sell memberships. And I just watching that whole thing click over. I just thought, man, this is what I want to do. I want to own a gym. I want to run a gym. Like I just, it was crystal clear. And I went to a personal development course, kind of a Tony Robbins sort of thing um, by a, a man named T. Harv Ecker in, in, in Canada called uh, Enlightened Warrior Training. And I came home from camp on Sunday. And on Monday morning, I slapped down my resignation two weeks before I was an associate partner in the firm. Wow. I was like, I am at the top of the ladder on the wrong building. 
<laughs> wow. That's crazy. So, Tell us a little bit about the challenges of running a gym because it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like me owning a bike shop. Like that sounds like yeah. so much fun, but I have worked at bike shops in the past and it is not <laughs> as easy as people think. It's not just a garage of parts and cool bikes that you get to go ride all the time. There's, there's a lot of serious challenges and it's very, very difficult. And I know Jim would be the same. What were some of the challenges you ran into? So, I mean, you dovetail really nicely into a book called the E-Myth by Michael Gerber, The Entrepreneurial oh, yeah. Myth. Yeah. And he breaks it down into three kinds of people. There's the technician who's a really good personal trainer. He's a really good bike mechanic. Um, she's a really good chef. He's a really good mechanic. doesn't matter. And, and that person has what we call the entrepreneurial seizure, where at some point that chef, that trainer, that bike mechanic is working for someone else. And they're like, my boss is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. If I was running my own shop, I could do such a better job. I got all these great ideas. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna play all the time. I'm gonna cook all the time. I'm gonna train people all the time. I'm gonna fix bikes and ride all the time. I'm gonna open my own shop. And then so you open it up. Now you have to become the manager. That's the third personality type. So there's the there's the technician, the entrepreneur, and the manager. And so then all of a sudden you find yourself owning a business and you're a manager. Now you're managing people and you're managing marketing and advertising and repair and maintenance and you're paying bills and you're paying taxes and you're fixing broken things and you're coming in early and you're staying late. And most people still try to keep being the technician because that's what they love. They still try to cook all the meals. They still try to train all the clients, but they also need to have an entrepreneurial vision of where the company's going or to fail. And when you're doing all three, you'll self-destruct every time. And that's the problem with most small businesses. That's why restaurants and gyms are the number one and number two failed businesses in the world. Wow. Because I didn't they're, realize that. They're, yeah, they're run by technicians, right? They're run by, yeah, they're run by people that are good at the craft, but they're not business people. And I was lucky because I had a business coach right from the start. And I was able to learn and realize that I needed to not be a personal trainer in my own gym. I couldn't coach classes in my own gym. I realized that pretty fast. And I began to be a student of how to be a business person. Because I'll tell you, for the first three, four years, I didn't even understand how the math worked on numbers, like, like in the sense of... I didn't know my books. I didn't know what a profit and loss statement was. I didn't know what report sheets out of QuickBooks meant. I like it was. It's a problem. It's a problem, right? <laughs> totally, totally. The recipe for failure. Wow. No, I mean, we worked for both my wife and I worked for a big corporate gym for a long time. And even though we had that support of the corporation, they, we, we were still kind of left to the wolves. Like we had to learn how to run, you know, reports and software programs and learn word and Excel and track things and, and learn how to, you know, chase down leads and do sales and marketing and all this stuff. And again, even though we had the big corporation, we, we were still kind of on our own to do that. And, and now that we own our own business, you're right. Like what the hell is marketing or like, or, 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 uh, you know, bookkeeping, like all of this stuff, you kind of have to learn as you go. And yeah, you're right. Like I didn't know what a PL was and now I'm very well aware of what it is, but it's, it's yeah. a tough learning curve for sure. Absolutely. And it's that critical piece that most technicians never develop. And, and what I, I started to get a little bit towards mastery in the later years, because I ran my gym for 18 years and eventually I had a crew of managers. So I had five managers. I had a front desk manager, I had a childcare manager, a personal training manager, group fitness classes manager, 
um, and a general manager. And so then my job became to work with the managers and they would do all the pieces for their area. But of course they would never do it the way I wanted them to, or, or to my standards. Although I shouldn't say never, I had some real phenomenal superstars, you know, the later, five, six years of the business, man, I had the best staff in the world. They were phenomenal. And that was the stuff that let me go away to the Ultraman World Championships for five weeks and and just be a couple of phone calls, but they just managed everything. So, I mean, I I was starting to get to that sweet spot to a degree, but then all it takes is for one of them to quit, right? They, they, They got pregnant or they got a better offer or they 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 move to somewhere or all it takes is for one superstar to come into your office and go, Scott, we got to talk. And you're like, "Uh Oh, here we go. Starting from scratch. (laughs) Right. You know that, you know that, don't you? When they walk into the office and their energy is quiet and they go, uh, Casey, we got to talk. And you're like, Oh oh, no. (laughs) Right. You know? Wow. Yeah, totally. I do want to talk about your transition into triathlon. How did that come about as something that you wanted to do? Well, for the first few years of owning my own gym, I really was into kind of the bodybuilding side of things and and fitness. And I got into a little bit sort of Spartan racing and before I wasn't Spartan racing back then, but I liked like functional fitness and, um, CrossFit hadn't developed yet, but that's what we did, (laughs) um, was big power movements and stuff like that and full functional stuff. And I, um, I taught spin classes and there was an, there was a half Ironman triathlon in our town and, I kind of thought, oh, I wonder if I could finish one of those. Like, so for those that don't know triathlon terms, um, in the States, a 1.2 mile swim and, uh, what's a 90 K bike 42 point or 45. I forget the distance in miles for a half for Ironman. Yeah. I want to say 56, 56 miles. Um, you know what? I got a calculator. I'm just going to quickly apologize and divide by 1.6. Yeah. 56 mile bike. And then, um, a 26 mile. 20, no, 13 mile, um, half marathon. So yeah, yeah that's right. So 1.2, 56 and, and 13 miles. Cause I'm Canadian. Right. So to me, it's different numbers, but, right. um, I thought, I wonder if I could finish a triathlon. Like, I mean, I can put off drowning. Like I'm, you know, I could swim. <laughs> I could, I've never swam laps a day in my life ever, but I used to be on a springboard diving team so I can swim to the edge of the pool and stuff. And I can ride that crap out of a spin bike for an hour and I used to run in high school before I broke my back, but it's healed now. And now that I've got a strong core, my back doesn't hurt. So I wonder if I could finish a triathlon. So I hired a coach because that's how I roll. I find somebody smarter than me and I get them to show me what I don't know and hired a coach and learned how to swim. That was a big adventure and bought an outdoor bike for the first time in high school and trained and got to that race in the summer of 2005. I did a couple of short ones first and I was a hundred percent in love with triathlon. I just... The, the, everything about it, the, the, the energy, it's like, I felt so friggin' alive being in a triathlon. It was just, just solid gold. And as somebody with ADHD, one of the greatest books I read was called a hunter in a farmer's world. And I, I don't believe attention deficit is a disorder. I think it's just a different way your brain is wired and we're wired for action. We're wired for competition. We're wired for, for battle. If you look at the historical genetic development of the species right so um being wired for battle triathlon was my battle it was the thing i could train for and then execute and i loved it and so in our town race the half ironman uh i was eighth in my age group and i topped 20 overall and wow. i got a roll down spot for ironman canada 
And so I had five weeks to double all of my distances and do the big full Ironman in Penticton, BC in, in Ironman Canada. Wow. And uh, I loved it. I crossed the line in 1157, 11 hours, 57 minutes. And I, you just couldn't stop me from smiling. Wow. That's impressive. Did you appreciate the training as much as you appreciated the events? Yeah, absolutely. The training is my, it's my meditation. It's my, I don't know. It's changed how and why I trained for a long time. It was just about, it was about suffering and proving that I was good enough. <laughs> it was some sort of, there was some real broken things from childhood that I would deal with in training, but it was meditation. It was, it was medication. It was phenomenal. The training became the harder the training was, the more I friggin' loved it. Like wow. when I would go to a triathlon camp or, or do some just murderously difficult set, I couldn't stop smiling. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, on the cycling side of things, I've noticed that, that that cyclists seem to kind of gravitate towards what they're really good at. So I always wanted to be like a really good climber. Um, and it, it didn't matter how much I climbed. I could climb and climb and climb and climb. And I always sucked at it no matter what. And I kind of settled <laughs> out as being like a really good criterium racer, which means I could go pretty hard for 45 minutes to an hour and I could finish fairly well doing that type of race. And I've always noticed with triathletes, it, it's always like, you're always going longer and longer. Like, once you finish the half, the next question is cool. Like you did a half when you're doing a full and you didn't even stop at full Ironman. You started training for ultra. Is it called ultra Ironman? Called Ultraman. Ultraman. Yeah. Tell us what the hell that is and why you didn't just stop <laughs> at a half iron or a full iron. You decided to just keep on going. Well, you know, it's a fun thing as I progressed in, in the triathlon world and did all kinds of different races and stuff. I realized that the shorter course stuff wasn't my strength. I wasn't a sprinter and I knew that, right? So I would, would race against specifically, specifically younger guys who could just, I mean, they could run a 30 minute 10 K and I'm a 39 minute 10 K. Well, we're not even in the same ballpark. So, but when I went longer, I would move up in the standings and I really enjoyed the longer stuff. I, I realized I'm a diesel engine and I was training for Ultraman or Ironman Canada in 2010 and I went out for supper or lunch, I should say, with uh, with my friend Cheryl Corbett, who I was staying with. And uh, she had invited a friend along, Nick Mallet. And Nick was an Australian, and he had actually won Ultraman Canada a couple times. And he's this guru of the sport kind of guy. And we were having lunch and talking up all kinds of things. I think it was my sixth Ironman or something like that, that I was training for. And, and Nick was like, my... You go to give Ultraman a try. And I was like, shut up. Those guys are nuts. And I won't wreck his accent anymore, but he's like, he's like, yeah, but think about it. You know, once you get swimming, you could swim for quite a while. Somebody fed you some electrolytes. And I was like, well, yeah. He says, you're a really strong cyclist because that's my jam. Cycling is my favorite of all the three, right? And he's like, you could easily do the, the first day bike course. And then the, I'll tell you the distance in a sec, but you could easily do the second day bike course. And I was like, yeah, but Nick, day three. So in Ultraman, there's you start off with a six-mile 10K swim. And then you do uh, a 90-mile, or sorry, 145-kilometer, um, which is, I think, 90-mile bike. And then day two is a 276K bike, which is, I think, 100 and, 175 miles. Mercy. And then day three is a 52-mile, 84.5K double marathon. And I was like, Nick, yeah, but like, look at like the bike ride on day two, there's a 12 hour cutoff each day. I mean, if you're going to finish that bike on day two. You got to be hauling. 
Like you, there's no fooling around to finish that kind of mileage in 12 hours. Right. And especially where the race is, you covered two or three mountain ranges. Like it's not flat. Right. So, and then, and I was like, but that double marathon, like, come on. And he just looked at me and he said, think about it. He says, you can run a 320 marathon. Yeah. We'll run a 340, 350 marathon. The first one, just take it easy. Run a four hour marathon. Then take 20 minutes to change your shoes and relax and have something to eat. And you could go walk the second marathon in seven and a half hours. And I was like, <gasps> you're right. And I signed up the next week for Ultraman Canada 2011. <laughs> it's still and not exactly easy. You're making it sound really easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it isn't. It's, it's, it's blindingly, sufferingly hard. There's no mistake. You will meet your demons and make friends with them. There's no question. Um, but that's my jam. And I just knew that. So I signed up for Ultraman Canada and I trained like a maniac. Like it's people don't realize, but it's 25 hours a week of training. It's, you know, some of my, like my Friday morning swim was um, 90 by 100. <laughs> You'd swim 100 meters or 100 yards, but it can't swim 100 meters. 90 times with 10 second recovery. Wow. Nine kilometers. Like it's all, it's five ish miles in the 25 meter fricking pool back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Like it's awful. It's mind numbing. Right. <laughs> but I jam on that, you know, and then your bike rides, my bike rides on the weekend would be five, six, seven, eight hours. And my runs on the on the weekend, I would do a run profile that would be five to seven hours long, and I would crush a ton of audiobooks and learn whole things. And I just was into it. And then I did Ultraman Canada Championships in 2011, and I was sixth overall. I was 20 minutes from second place in a 27 hour race, wow. and I qualified for the World Championships. And I just, I just freaking loved it. Wow! Yeah. How many did you end up completing? Ultramans, yeah. I have completed uh, 11, 13, 18. I've completed three and I didn't quite complete the one in 15. Let's talk about that one. <laughs> you um, you decided, well, oh, so let's talk about the documentary and how that first became something you wanted to do or you, it was your friend that, that made the movie, correct? Like when did you guys start talking about making a documentary about your journey to this Ultraman in particular in 2015? Yeah, that's a great question, Casey. So in 2013, I did the world championships and I felt like the little kindergarten kid that was at high school. I was like, oh my goodness, look at all these real athletes. Oh, because I felt like such a poser, right? These guys were legit. I was just, I don't know, I faked my way in there. That's my mental garbage, right? Um, and I felt like I was amongst all these real athletes, but I went out there and I just suffered like I do. And I never quit. I'm relentless. I never stop. That's my gift. I'm not fast. I'm not genetically designed for triathlon. I've got short legs and a long back. I weigh 197, and most of the people I race against weigh a buck 40. So I'm the Clydesdale. Like, who brought that guy kind of thing? But I never quit. And I finished the Ultraman World Championships in 2013. I was 27th in the world. <laughs> I was like, this is awesome. Wow. And I took a year off. From Ultraman, I just did an Ironman the next year. But then I wanted to go back again. I wanted to go back in 2015. And my wife and I were at the Banff Mountain Film Festival. So, um, you know, like a local film festival here in Canada that's been going for about 30 years. And we were watching all these stories of rock climbers and cyclists and 
kite surfers and adventurers and mountain climbers and all these crazy, awesome people doing these phenomenally motivating things. And I just turned to my wife. I'm like, we should make a documentary about Ultraman for 2015. Like, it's, I think it's a good story. And nobody's heard of Ultraman. There's no TV show. There's no film crew. There's no prize money. Nobody cares. You get a t-shirt and a medal at the end if you're lucky. Like, it's this quiet little group. There's only 40 people in the world invited. You have to qualify to get in. Nobody's heard of it. There's, there's no fanfare. Nobody does it because they, they want to be... They, they, nobody does it to impress anyone. Nobody cares. Nobody's even heard of it. And so you do it because you love the sport. And that was me. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to make a film and show the world this amazing sport? Because Ultraman is very much a team sport. It's a family support because your crew supports you through the race. They follow you. They, they leapfrog around the island in a van and provide your aid station. There's no aid stations. There's your crew. And so you get to do this together as a team in a sense. And it's this beautiful, fantastic story. So I phoned up my buddy, Drew Kenworthy, um, who was a filmmaker, but mostly five to 10 minute short films or commercials. He did a lot of weddings and stuff like that. And I was like, he had done some commercials for me when I was running the gym, some advertising and stuff. And I was like, hey, Drew, do you think you could manage like a, like a movie? And we were kind of thinking 30 to 45 minute documentary. We chatted it up and he was like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. I'm all in. So Drew started chasing me around. He went to Arizona to training camp in 2015 and uh, went to an Ironman and did some filming of me and stuff. We were building this documentary. And in 2015, we were racing the Ultraman Worlds and I had a really solid swim and a really good day one bike. I was 14th overall off the bike and I was coming into day two and hammering the pedals and I was 10th overall and I was hunting number nine with a goal of top five and crushing it. Just felt powerful and strong and fit and everything was going great. And I remember I passed Adam Fox. I passed Gary Wang from the States and then I passed Adam Fox from Australia and I passed Peter Hudson. And as I was passing Peter from Australia, he was also from Australia. We were um, chatting it up a little bit. He's like, how many half all man's he done, mate? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I've lost count. And he's, we've only got one go. And I was like, oh man, you're right. We've only got like, like 90K to go. We've only got like 56 miles to go. And I just smashed the pedals and took off. We're going down a little bit of a hill. It was raining a little bit. And apparently there was algae on the bridge deck. And I woke up three days later in the brain trauma unit on a different island. Wow. Do you no memory? Do you know no memory of the crash itself? In the documentary, they talk about how there was kind of like a split in the path. There was almost like a walkway, but they yeah. they had a different vantage point because it, it seemed like they either stayed on on a road or something where the vehicles were. Do you remember that? Did, did, was there like a decision or a split off or something that that you recall? Yeah. So I mean, there's tons of these little bridges in in Hawaii, and so you have this decision to make. You either stay on the road in traffic and there's no shoulder. Or you just fade to the right and then slight correct and you go on this this three foot wide footpath yeah. that's at the side of the bridge and it's safer. Yeah. And so you have to make a decision. I made a decision every time. If there was traffic coming both directions on the bridge, I took the footpath. No question. Yeah, no question. Right? For sure. I'm not gonna fight traffic. So yeah. there's no room and it's a narrow two-lane highway. So I had just taken the footpath. Wow. And there was algae on it. There was a little stream that had been running off the bridge off over to the edge. And it was full of green algae. Like Adam later said he slipped and fell on his butt walking on it and kind of wow. thing. So we just, we know what happened um, kinesthet like kinetically because my, 
my wheel slid out to the right, obviously, because I had clearly put my left hand down because I sprained my fingers, sprained my wrist, broke my arm in three places. I broke my, I shattered my shoulder in four pieces. I broke five ribs all on the left side. And then I started to flip and I smashed my knee and tore a big chunk of cartilage out of it. I scraped down my ankle, my helmet twisted while I cartwheeled and I flipped around and smashed my head into the concrete barricade with my helmet, obviously in the wrong position. And I broke my skull open. Um, which is uh, a problem. <laughs> is it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Kind of <laughs> Not ideal. Less than ideal. No, I don't recommend it. Okay, got it. I'll I'll make a note. Um, you know, Jonathan Vodder's pr- former pro cyclist and and you know cycling coach has has been quoted to say like, if you want to know what it's like to be a pro cyclist, just jump out of your car when you're driving 40 miles an hour in your underwear, and you'll <laughs> kind of appreciate what that's like because you, yeah. you're not wearing hardly anything. You've got a very thin layer of spandex on part of your body, and you're you're up against it. Whatever is in the road or in your way, like if you go down, it's gonna be pretty nasty. And so it goes back to that decision of whether you're going to ride on the road or ride on the footpath. Absolutely. A hundred percent of the time I'm going on the footpath and it's just bad luck. You caught a slick edge, but you don't, you've got no recollection recollection of going down whatsoever. No, it's kind of freaky. And just to dovetail on your earlier point, I mean, Hey, look, we're not stupid. We have a chunk of styrofoam on our head. So come on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I have no recollection. I remember talking to Peter and then I woke up and my eyes came into focus. I'm in a hospital bed and my best friend stands up from a chair across the room and I try to move and everything hurts and I can't breathe and I got a splitting headache and everything just feels raw. Like I can't move. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's the memory piece. Wow. And what, what's interesting is in that, that moment I woke up, um, I found out later from my buddy Lyle that that was about the sixth or seventh time that I had woken up and asked him, where are we? What happened? What's going on? Wow. I it was about the sixth or seventh. It was just my hard drive finally started recording. Wow. That's so crazy. Uh, you know, watching the documentary, I was also, it was, it was really hard to see the scenes of you getting, you know, loaded into the ambulance and that kind of thing. But I also really, um, really could empathize with all the friends who like literally watched you go down, came up on the scene and like, I don't envy them either. Like that must've been so hard for them to see their good friend go down and then have, um, then have somebody in the group say, look, he would have wanted you to finish this, get back on your bike and go finish this, which yeah, like I get it. But, but the headspace you would be in finishing that bike ride would be awful. So hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, um, (laughs) the hard part for me is to say this part without getting all choked up, but um, everybody was amazing. Like you got to realize this is their world championships. They fought for a year or two to get here. Peter and Adam came all the way from Australia. Some of the guys came from South America and um, they didn't leave me for over 40 minutes. They sat with me and would not leave till they knew I was, in an ambulance and I was going to be okay. They wow. didn't leave. That's amazing. And yeah, like you can see on the, on the documentary, um, Peter says, he's like, I don't want to go on. I can't get on the bike. And my crew, Doug Kenbest, it's like, Scott would want you to continue. Scott wants you to finish this race. You got to do it for Scott. You got to finish the race for him. And, um, and that was huge. And Adam and Gary, Adam and uh, Gary was able to, to carry on. And, um, and Peter and Adam actually rode the final 56 miles of the bike course together. 
And obviously the race directors didn't give a flying fudge about drafting rules or whatever. The boys just rode together and they crossed the finish line together, hand in hand, raised in the air and um, some big emotional times. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it echoed through the whole group. Um, Jochen Dembeck from Germany, he's interviewed on the film. He kept talking about, he's doing this. I'm doing this for you, Scott. I'm going to run tough today. And he pushed himself harder than he's ever pushed. Um, Bath Brewster wore my jersey across the finish line. One of my spare jerseys because the one I was wearing was trash. trash. But, uh, <laughs> That's the worst part about wrecking, honestly. Like, I know, ruining right? a, a sick kid or like break your bike or something. Like, damn yeah. it, <laughs> all healed. This, oh, my bike. This $200 kid won't. I'm Scottish. My bike is fine. It's got a wee scratch. It's still fine. <laughs> um, you got to defend the bike, push it out of the way. Uh, my Scottish accent's better than my my Australian That's one. Good. But, uh, oh my good! <laughs> <laughs> wow, but, uh, it was huge. It echoed through the whole group, and everybody was unreal. And I mean, when when I was in the hospital in Waimea, and they're just like, "We got to take him to the brain trauma unit." It's in a bad way. And um, my wife had our three and a half year old son, and she's like, "I can't, I, I can't drop and go to another island." What? Like, wait, what? And my buddy Lyle's like, "I'll go." And so he jumped in a flight and he flew to, to Oahu with nothing but the clothes on his back and, and slept in the chair in my room for three days. And then my friend, Jen McVeigh, um, she used her air mile points to get my wife to the other island and get us all back again. Wow. Uh, when we got back to Kona, there was um, some of the locals had arranged with their church group to have people bring us food and take care of things and help us out. And we had, it was unbelievable. The, that, and that's the thing, like, in in Ultraman, there's three words: Aloha, Kokua, and Ohana. And Aloha is the spirit of love. Kokua is is spirit and giving, and Ohana is family. And of course, you know Lilo and Stitch, right? Ohana means family, and family means nobody gets left behind or forgotten, mm. right? That's that's the big deal. I mean, um, and and Ultraman is all about family. It's all about Ohana. Like we help each other through the race always. I mean, I remember one year one of the crew vans, their alternator died and another crew just crewed for their athlete for three hours till they got their van fixed. Like that's just what we do. Like our crew has given other athletes a spare tire when they had a flat because their crew is too far away. Somebody's done that for me. Like we help each other. So that was, that was huge doing that whole piece. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That definitely shines through and you can see where the priority was for everybody on your crew. They were, you know, th completely willing to give up that race if necessary to make sure that you were okay. You could see that, um, totally shine through. Tell us a little bit about the recovery process. Um, was it something you knew you needed to get through so that you could return to competing again? Or was it just something like, look, I, let me just learn how to walk again and I'd be happy. <laughs> you know, it's funny. People always ask that, like, well, when did you know you wanted to race again? And I was like, about 38 seconds after I woke up, <laughs> there's actually a video of me and it's, it's hard to watch because I look like crap. The side of my face is scraped off and I got chunks in my head and um, my skull's the wrong shape and whatever. But I was like, yeah, I'm a little banged up, but I'll race again. I'll be back. It'll take me a few weeks to get over this and I'll be back. Like I was, there was never a question. And I have to say that that never wavered, like getting back to racing, getting back to Ultraman and finishing that race was my unwavering goal. And every time there was a step back, it's like, okay, how do we get through this so I can race again? Okay. How do we fix this? All right. What surgery do I need? And I just kept on that path. And it was interesting because in the hospital in Oahu, I didn't know my arm was broken. 
because they didn't x-ray far enough up to catch it. They just said, I sprained my wrist and it's really sore. Um, and they said my shoulder would heal. But when I got back to Canada, it was in four pieces. And I was like, there's no chance your shoulder heals. We have to put it all back together. It's in four pieces. So, um, you know, it was seven months of having metal plates in and stuff and rehab and learning to walk without tripping and learning to do a lot of things. I had to work with neurologists and I had CAT scans and I did hyperbaric oxygen therapy five days a week where they compressurize you to one atmosphere and you breathe pure oxygen to let your brain heal. Uh, I did that for three months and because I had one of the worst brain injuries you can get. All the medical textbooks said I should have been in a vegetative state, unable to speak. So I'm very, 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 very lucky. Um, you know, I had, I had whiplash and a bunch of stuff like that, but it was a lot of therapy, a lot of physio and for the longest time, I could only stay awake for about an hour and a half and then I had to sleep for six hours. So wow. I was only awake for about four and a half, five hours a day. And it was tough for a while. You know, I'm at home with a three and a half year old, my wife, and she was just a superstar. Hillary is just amazing. Um, she was calm through it. And we were living in a rental duplex cause we'd sold our house we wanted to build a new one so life was kind of upside down and of course i've still got to run my gym because yeah, i was, I was gonna say you still have a business still have a business and nobody's doing marketing because i was the marketing guy because i was the entrepreneur i was the big idea marketing guy all of a sudden it's january and we got nothing going and so now we're borrowing money from our parents to so keep the gym open while they recover and it was hard man it was it was really hard Wow. There's a lot to it. Wow. That certainly sounds like it. And it's hard to like skip through that part without picking it apart and, you know, <laughs> really understanding the depths of despair and misery and how difficult that would have been. But one of my favorite scenes in the movie is your acceptance letter. Once you got back into yeah. ultra and you just getting so choked up, um, yeah. I think was a really special moment. I'm so glad that got captured on, on camera. What was that like? Yeah, that was hugely emotional when I opened that letter <laughs> The guys were all there. It's I still get all emotional about it, but it was huge because it was a hell of a fight to crawl back to that, like relearning to walk properly, relearning to run without tripping. Um, I had been through so many things. And then I was just starting to make headway with my running. And then I was playing a game and I my knee twisted out sideways and tore. And that revealed that my MCL had torn in the crash, but they didn't catch it. And it had fibrous healing a fibrous healing bridge to my, to my, um, cartilage. And so I had to have knee surgery seven weeks before Ironman Coeur d'Alene in 2017. It's just another big fat setback. And when I got that acceptance letter in 2018 saying, we're selecting you to come back to the world championships. Oh man, that feeling was overwhelming. It was validating. It was huge. Um, it was a big, it made all the difference. Like all the fighting was worth it. And, um, the race was incredible. It was just a full emotional journey to, wow. to get back and, and complete that task. Tell us a little bit about that, that event. Like, what was that like? It was amazing. I mean, the, the family and the connection, I mean, even athletes that were just meeting me for the first time and heard the story and, and we were all, everybody was super, super supportive. And when I, um, like I had a solid swim on day one, which was amazing. And a really solid bike ride on day one. And then day two, uh, day two was tough. They had, because the volcanic eruptions in Hawaii in 2018, they had to, to change the race course. So instead of going to, around the far side of the Island, cause it's a, it's a 320 mile race. And so we cover the whole perimeter of the Island of Kona, um, the big Island of Hawaii. We had to get rid of the whole part out back by Hilo and Pahoa because the volcano, 
had had removed most of the road structure in that whole section. So we had to go up and over Saddle Mountain Road. So <laughs> there was 14,000 feet of vertical climbing on wow. the day two bike course that year, which is, it's a lot. When you combine it with a bike ride of that length, 175 mile bike covering, covering 14,000 vertical feet in 30 degree temperatures, or sorry, 95 degree heat, like it's something. Wow. And uh, so there's 40 of the best triathletes in the world for this distance. And 14 of them did not finish the bike ride on day two under cutoff. It was crushingly hard. Wow. Brutal. And yeah. Brutal. But when I crossed that finish line on day two of the bike course, to me, that was almost the biggest finish line because getting off the bike and crossing the finish line, we crossed in the dark. We only had, I think 27 minutes to spare before cutoff. And there was a circle of about 30 or 40 people, athletes that had finished their race two hours ago, didn't leave. They waited till I got across the line to wow. hug me. Wow. That's amazing. It was hugely emotional. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Um, I was recently, in fact, just this week, introduced to this quote by Seneca, um, who is an ancient Roma uh, stoic yeah. and he's talking about pain and, and, you know, reflecting on pain in the past, but also reflecting on, you know, future pain and how futile it is to not just be in the present and deal with what you have. And he says, and that, which was bitter to bear is pleasant to have born. And I think that's such an amazing quote and putting things into perspective. Like when you're going through a challenge, man, it is awful. And, and you don't often see, you know, when it's going to end or how brutal it's going to be, or if it's going to be of any benefit at some point, but once you get through it, it is then a pre, you know, a, a gift basically that you had gone through that thing and has made you stronger. So in what ways had that experience made you stronger, better prepared for the challenges that you face for the rest of your life? Oh man, so much awesome. And what you just said, Casey, first of all, I want to dovetail that I'm a huge stoic philosophy fan. Um, the obstacle is the way I have read that book over and over. I've given it as gifts. Me too. I love Seneca, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius and the stoic philosophy is my jam. Um, and you're hundred percent right. The, like that's, that's one of the reasons I'm good at ultra distance stuff is because no matter how hard it gets, I'm always clear that I'm like, yeah, but when we're done, this is going to be awesome. And, you know, like you said, I'm going to feel so great for having gone through this. And once I finished the worlds in 2018, my comeback race, and I incidentally, I ended up 25th overall, which is pretty sweet. Um, I just felt like, wow, there's just no limits. Like if I looked at the past three years of, of everything it took, like I got to tell you the physiotherapy to get my shoulder to work again was ungodly painful to stretch my shoulder out and make it work again. Um, so I could swim. Like it was but, but I felt unstoppable. I felt huge. I felt so gifted and lucky and, and, and just the, the richness of life and, and being gifted back a life again. And, and every moment felt better and more. And what's been powerful is in, in March 17, on March 17th, 2020, when, when the virus was hitting and we didn't know what the hell was going on and everybody thought maybe it was really bad. And it turns out it wasn't as bad as they said, but whatever, we didn't know what was going on. Um, and they shut down all gyms in our province, in Canada, in our state. And it took me about 36 hours to go, okay, the gym's done. Um, I pulled up a spreadsheet. I did all the math. I crunched the numbers. I was like, even if we do the world's most incredible unicorn fairy dust successful online at-home workout program, 
we will never pay the bills to keep this 15,000 square foot building empty for the next couple of months. There's no chance we survive this. We don't have the funds to do this. So we're done. And I wasn't, I didn't know what I was going to do next. And it was unnerving and I ugly balled till two in the morning, but I knew it was the right decision. And I get that from the race. I was like, it'll be fine. People are like, what are you going to do? I don't know. I'll figure something out. This is going to be great. And we just sold off all our equipment, paid off all our debts, paid off all our members that had prepaid. We, we got everything cleared off the table, walked away pretty much with nothing. Yeah, we took about a half a million dollar loss, but um, whatever. It's like, okay, now what? Yeah. What life am I going to create? What am I going to build now? And I got to tell you, Casey, it's, I never could have dreamed my life could be this amazing. I have the greatest <laughs> life in the world. It gets insane. I'm home every day. I have a wonderful young boy who's got ADHD, autism, and Tourette's. And instead of me working all the time and being gone before he's awake and home after he's asleep, I'm here all the time. I'm, I work in my room. I have got my little studio that I've built, uh, my sound studio, so I can record daily mindset videos to coach people through the mindset of success. And I run a 21 day nutrition program, a six week program, and I get to coach people. I get to do what I love and I'm not fixing treadmills and plunging toilets and doing marketing and paying taxes and running, managing 27 staff. It's been the greatest thing. And I got to that because I had the faith that it doesn't matter how hard it is. I'll figure it out. I love that, man. I absolutely love that. What a great example of taking what it looks like a very difficult situation and adapting to it as quickly as possible, accepting the things you can and can't control and moving on from there and creating your best life. We had a very similar experience where, you know, our gym closed down and we recognized also that like people's behaviors are changing and they may not ever change back regardless of how long this pandemic is going. And like you, we kind of yep. decided like, ah, this isn't going to be a few weeks. Like this is going to go a little longer than anybody wants to really recognize. But in that time, you never know how, how people's behaviors are changing and they liked working out from home and you have to kind of dance around those things. And so happy and proud of you for, for making that adaptation. Can you tell us a little bit uh, more about some of your programs and how you work with people today? Yeah, for sure. And, and you're hundred percent right. It's about, sometimes you have to pivot. It, it, you can't be attached to what it was you loved if that doesn't exist anymore. So it's fantastic. I get to coach people one-on-one. -on -one. So I've converted two bays of my garage and my house to a gym. And so I teach, I coach a few people one-on-one, -on -one, not a lot, but I coach triathletes online. Um, and I have, uh, I actually invested in a swim spa. We, as part of the, we just, whatever, we found the money and remortgaged and bought a, a stationary swimming treadmill basically. Um, so I can do full triathlons in my, basically in my backyard house kind of thing. And I have a 21 day nutrition reset program. I get people away from sugar and grains and dairy for 21 days and help them reset their body and get rid of inflammation and just really get back to being optimally healthy. And then I've got another program that's six weeks long where I build custom meal plan stuff. And, but every single one of my programs, you get a daily mindset video from me. That's anywhere from four and a half to 10, 12 minutes long. Some of them are a little bit longer, but I coach on all the things I've learned on nutrition in the last 25 years and just little sound bites of things to understand about the psychology and and dealing with the social world, because I think you understand knowing what to eat is easy. That's like the least complicated thing. But doing that in a world that doesn't support that is the hard thing. You bump into Christmas traditions and Halloween traditions and Easter traditions, and it's your birthday. And how do you manage all the 
society pitfalls. And so I get to coach on that. And I also do keynote talks and I've been hired to speak in several different places. Some of them are on Zoom. Some are finally becoming live again, which is great. So I love being a professional speaker. And I'm in the midst of writing a book all about the story of the race and the crash and everything to fill in all the blanks that the the documentary missed. And the documentary is free on YouTube, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, it's great. I really enjoyed watching it. Um, really interesting and very engaging. He did a fantastic job and really captured all the raw emotion uh, throughout. And I thought it was very, very well done. Um, so cool that you're working with people in that way and especially working on nutrition with endurance athletes. I know yeah. how I'm writing today as a 28-year-old versus you know 12 years ago when I was competing at 26. And I, I know that I'm writing stronger now and I would have performed so much better. It would have been very interesting to know what my, you know, competitive, very amateur career would have been, you know, with eliminating a vast amount of, of sugar and grains, because that's all I was running on. And as an endurance athlete, and it was absolutely miserable. It's so rotten to be just throwing grams and grams and grams of sugar into your body as you're trying to go. And I certainly see this, the place for that in competition, but my goodness was I overthrottling that engine. So oh, yeah. crazy to be on the other side of that. Yeah. I'm the same. Like, oh man, if I would have known 15 years ago what I know now, damn, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. It's great to feel great and feel optimal at any age, even as, as you know, people are aging to just know that you're not supposed to feel worse. You're not supposed to get sick. You're not supposed to get fatter and fatter and move less and less as you age. You can actually thrive and really, you know, have success in your life, whatever that looks like. If you just follow some basic principles, as far as nutrition and exercise and, and stress management and and rest and recovery. Once you put those into place, I, I think you can experience a totally different life. And you're right. I think the social part of nutrition is very um, overrated or I'm sorry, underrated as far as something that needs to be like really addressed. So I really love that. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you're working with that with people looking forward to your book coming out. I do want to ask you, you know, when you look back and you see how many people, you know, sacrificed their time, their energy, all of your friends, you know, making the documentary, all the things that came together, that your crew, your team, all the people that, you know, waited for you and stood with you in your corner. As, as you move forward through life, how do you feel like that is influencing the way you pay it forward to other people? Mm, yeah. People are the deal, man. Like, like your friends and stuff. I think that's probably one of the hardest things about this whole last two years is watching people be horrible to each other over something that's not even based on truth. It's like, whoa, 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 let's be nice to each other. Like, you know, you can believe that and I'll believe this. We could still be good. Um, it's everybody's going through something. You know, one of the things I heard was people say, oh, we're all in the same boat. No, we're not. We're in the same storm. Some people are in a dinghy with holes in it. Some people are in a cruise ship. Like we're, we're, we're in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. And compassion for people and, and that love. And you, know, you talked about social occasions you're on a meal plan and you've got goals for your health or for your optimal, whatever your goals are. And you go to a birthday party. You got to remember the point of the birthday party is not cake. The point of the birthday party is someone's a year older and you love them. There's nothing to do with cake. <laughs> like you cannot have the cake and it's okay. Like people need to realize that kind of stuff. And people, man, Ohana, family, that's the deal. Whether they're the family you were born to or the ones you chose through friendships, that's the deal. And one of the things you you mentioned earlier that I never got a chance to circle back to is, but the, the post-traumatic stress disorder that, that hit my friends that were at the crash site and stuff, like that became a big deal too, 
one of the reasons I wanted to recover was to show them that everything they did was worth it and that I was okay and that everybody's going to be okay. Like that was a big deal. Um, I actually got one of my friends counseling because he couldn't manage, he couldn't manage it. He couldn't sleep. Wow. He couldn't ride his bike anymore and stuff like that. So yeah, like it's all about friends. It's all about people. That's what matters most. Yeah. I don't wow. know if I answered your question properly or not. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You did. That's a great answer. I really love and appreciate that. This has been such an amazing conversation. Can you tell us if you had one simple tip to leave with the listener from this conversation today, what would that one thing be? Mm. One of the things I say in my groups is um, AFCNGU, which is action, feedback, correction, never give up. And everything you do in life, you're going to take some action. That's the foundation of everything. Nothing happens without action. You have to take some action. You have a dream. You've got a goal. You've got a race. You've got a wish. You've got a, doesn't matter. You got to take some action and you're going to get some feedback. And if that feedback sucks, you need to make a correction and then you need to take action again. And if you get your feedback that what you're doing is good, then you do, you keep doing it, you do more of it and you just continue. So AFC action, feedback, correct or continue. And if you never give up, it's impossible fail. It's impossible. You can't fail. And I didn't fail because it didn't matter. I was training hard. Oh, your knees totaled. You got to have surgery. Fine. Get the surgery. Can I run again? Yeah. Great. Okay. Your brain's still not working right. You tripped, you fell, you dislocated fully gloved and folded two fingers back to the tendons and you folded six back. You can't use your hands for a few weeks. Okay, fine. How much is rehab? Great. Let's get on with it. Right. Action, feedback, correction, action, feedback, correction. And I relentlessly never, ever, ever quit. And I made it back to the world championships as 25th in the world had the biggest celebration and everything since, you know, my, my, my gym had to close fine. My life changed. Great. I'm going to take some action. I get some feedback that worked. That didn't work. I'm going to make a correction. I'm going to continue. I'm just going to keep going. I'm never going to get up. Babe Ruth. Everybody knows Babe Ruth. He's one of the phenomenal superstars of baseball. He held the home run record for nearly 41 or 42 years. Right. Everybody knows Babe Ruth. Well, Babe Ruth saying is it's hard to beat a person that never gives up. People don't realize that in fact, Babe Ruth did 714 home runs, but he had over 1300 strikeouts. He had the strikeout record too. Wow. <laughs> he was willing to swing at the ball. Yeah. That's amazing. I think that's such a great lesson in endurance sport also that, you know, you can always take one more step. You can always turn the cranks one more time. And just, just as long as you're making forward progress, if you fall, you fall yeah. forward and you fall on your face. I absolutely love that. Scott McDermott, this has been an amazing conversation. So inspirational. I've definitely learned a lot from this conversation. Where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? I appreciate that, Casey. Uh, my main website is scottyfit.com. So S-C-O-T-T-Y-F-I-T.com. So scottyfit.com. And if you want to watch the film, it's warriorcodefilm.com. Of course, there's a link on scottyfit.com. Yeah, that's great. We will link to all of that in the show notes. And for the listener, I highly recommend taking Scott up on his offer to, to go and use that link. Watch this free movie. It is very inspiring. It's very well done. Um, I can't say enough about it. It's, it's really a great movie. Scott, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so very much for facing the challenges of your life and doing it in a way that is, I, I don't know, it's just, it's very inspirational and it, and it gives it gives me personally hope that even though there's dark times and difficulties in life, that if you just continue and keep going and don't give up, like you said, that you can find the other side of that and be a stronger person for it. So thank you so very much for everything that you've done. And thank you for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. You're very welcome. Thanks, Casey. And last thing I'll say is remember this forward is a pace. Mm. 
man, I love that. That's great. I'm going to remember that. Thank you so very much for appearing on our show today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas of your body, it's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.